Hey, welcome to night school. And I gotta say, I got a bang energy drink here. It's Star Blast. I don't know if I've talked about Star Blast, but I believe, I believe Star Blast was the first flavor of bang I ever had. I got it from a vending machine at a college about a year or two ago. I was walking at the college. Not, I'm not a student. Just one of those weird guys who goes to college college campuses despite not going there. Although I had gone there. I did go to that college, but I just I can't, I just can't I missed the place. But I got a star blast there and I recognize I haven't been talking a lot about bang. There was a phase there where it seemed like every episode was punctuated with bang talk. One word, bang talk. <laughs> Not to be confused with bangkok. Uh but I you know that's actually a problem because it's not that I haven't been drinking bang. While I have not been talking about bang, it's not because I haven't been drinking it. And that's a problem because it means that my bang consumption is normal. It means that bang has been so normalized in my life that I don't even joke or talk about it anymore. Not that I drink it all the time, but it does seem to be... I tend to buy it when I go to the grocery store. So it's definitely a a two cans a week deal, maybe a little more. Say two to four cans a week on average these days. Usually two in that day. You know, it's usually if I buy two, usually I'm going to drink them both in a given day. And I, you know, I don't want to hear the warnings about doing that. I don't want to hear the warnings. Uh, that's not healthy. Um, but a star blast here is my second one of the day. But yeah, it is a problem. It means it means that my habit has become normalized if I don't feel the need to mention it. Because that happens with any addiction, where the second you're no longer like, wow, dude, we got so drunk last night. We got so drunk last night. <laughs> you know, the second you stop doing that, it's because it's just normal. It's just expected. Whereas that first time you drink, it's like you want to tell all your friends about it for weeks. Remember that time that we drank? But in this case, you know, I'm, I'm only drinking bang. And I think you know, just to explain how things become normalized, like bang, uh, you know, I was painting those people's house and while they were paying me a wage, they gave me a tip. And that tip was in the form of bang energy drinks because I'm friends with their daughter and, you know, she learned that I'm a bang fan. So I noticed that when they would go to the store or run errands, I noticed this, uh, but when they would run errands, they would come back and they learned that I'm a bang fan. So they would be like, hey, while you're working, here's here's a couple Bang Energy drinks. And it was really nice of them. Uh, you know, and they got me Miami Cola, my favorite flavor, which still, you know, you don't find most places. Actually, I have a friend, uh, she lives in Wisconsin, and she sent me a photo of a the refrigerated section of a store, and they had an assortment of Bang Energy drinks, and there was no Miami Cola. So it's good to know because it means it's not just Washington. Washington isn't the only state that is very selective in where and how they distribute the Miami Cola flavor of Bang Energy Drink. I really only see it at convenience stores. I do not see it at grocery stores. But it was nice to know that, I guess, another W state. Maybe it's a W state thing. Maybe it's a W state thing. 
They don't have Miami Cola in grocery stores. But I also think there's some sort of logic to that. I think that if they were to have Miami Cola in every store, it would offset, you know, that people wouldn't buy the other flavors. The sales of other flavors would drop dramatically. So I think it's a way to keep the sale numbers of other flavors up by only having Miami Cola at certain places. But anyway, the family I was working for, they bought me Miami Colas, but sometimes they would go to these places, these abyss, these abysses. It's weird to say the plural of abysses. These abysmal places that don't have Miami Cola. Like some of their errands happen to go to these places. And uh, I want to go to those places and say, hey, I know a way to make this place unabysmal. I know how to get this place out of the abyss, and that's by distributing Miami Cola in your refrigerated section. It's that easy. It's that easy. Like, I I remember hearing that the mafia in New York City and other big cities back in the day, they controlled the jukebox racket, they controlled slot machines, gambling machines that you would find in stores. I think they still do. I think they obviously still have control over some of that stuff. But the mafia had a little sticker they would put to let people know that this is a mafia-owned jukebox, so don't mess with it. And if they found jukeboxes or slot machines or just different devices in stores that were not sanctioned, that did not have the sticker, the mafia's enforcers would bust the machine up, which seems like it would be really satisfying. Take a baseball bat and just, like, beat up a jukebox or a machine of some kind. Uh, But it's kind of like that, where it's like all it takes is a little sticker for it to be legitimate. Just put, put your sticker on it. I feel like the same is true for Miami Cola, where it's like, just put a, a Miami Cola, one can. You don't even need to have a whole bunch of them. Just one can, just the sight of a single Miami Cola in these grocery stores that don't have Miami Cola would completely legitimize the store. It would take them out of the abyss. But yeah, so one day the family that I was working for brought me an entire sack of different flavors. No Miami Cola, but it was definitely the the quantity of Bang energy drinks that were in this sack. The sack of Bang more than made up for the fact that there was no Miami Cola in it. And so they brought me an entire sack of Bang. A sack of Bang. They brought me a sack of Bang. And uh, that was a lot. You know, and they allowed me to take one or two of them home. More bang than I've ever had available to me. I've only really had, I've had four available to me at home. But there were, uh, I mean, probably probably eight cans, probably double that, you know. And uh, the thing is, though, you can see where addiction becomes greedy very quickly. Addiction becomes greedy just so quickly, you don't even notice it happening. Because uh, my friend, their daughter, I noticed that she had one of them. And it was her right. They purchased them. She purchased them. I mean, that was their sack of bang that they were allowing me to be the main consumer of. And I noticed that she had one of them. And my brain, you know, this wasn't something that I wanted to feel. I didn't want to feel this way. But I noticed that I started to, uh, like, ah, that's one less bang for me. 
Oh, that's this one less bang for me. One less, you know, and, and I'm glad, though, that somebody else got to enjoy it. I'm, you know, I'm glad that a friend of mine, because I don't have friends who drink bang. I don't have friends. I, I've never talked to another person who has had one. And uh, the fact that my friend had one is great. I'm glad that somebody else could enjoy one. But it did, I had this instant feeling of, you know, addict brain, where it was just, that's one less for me. Almost like, you know, it, when you're drinking and your friend drinks the last beer. But it wasn't the last bang. It was, And that's how greedy you get. That's how greedy habit makes you. Like, I remember back, way back when, when I still smoked weed and everything, and you know, I remember like a friend getting a bag of weed and I couldn't get one and things like that. And you're kind of, you're upset. You're not mad at them, but there's a party, you're jealous. You're jealous. It's just, it's all in that mindset. It's all in that. I mean, it can happen over a chicken wing. You know, it's not just substances. It's not just energy drinks and beers and bags of weed, sacks of weed. I used to care about sacks of weed. Now I care about sacks of bang. You heard of a saxophone? A sack of phones? You heard of a saxophone? Well, this is a sack of bang. Sacks of bang. Sacks of weed. Whatever. Anyway, that's probably enough bang talk. Probably enough bang talk. You're going to have to go to Bangkok if you want to have any more bang talk. This is just a very, all very clever wordplay, I know. But, you know, I was uh, thinking this morning, you know, yesterday I was talking a lot about, you know, just the temporary nature of things, which people accept. You know, people, I, most people accept the temporary nature of things. I mean, while people fear death, people are, aren't often in denial of it, in my experience. And that's one of the issues I have with the, the so-called death positivity movement, because I understand that a lot of what I say probably comes across that way. But the death positivity movement, it's, you know, it's, it's become this kind of niche where it's kind of convincing people that death is normal and we can integrate it into our lives in a normal way. And I believe that it's noble in that goal. I believe that there is something noble in wanting to kind of normalize death, which is very normal. Death, is, it turns out, is very normal. But, you know, my little brief experiences with the whole death positivity thing, I, I get this impression from some of the proponents of it that they're convinced people just don't even believe in death. They seem convinced that they're telling people something brand new. And I don't think that people... While people might not be comfortable with death, I think most people understand the inevitability of it. And so I don't want to come across, you know, like me saying, oh, life is temporary. Life is temporary. Did you know that? I don't want to come across like I'm making some bold new declaration that people don't understand. I only want to use that to emphasize the fact that if if life is temporary, so many other components in life are also temporary, and that should be a relief. It should give you a much wider range of motion. You don't have to commit to things necessarily. And that's what got me thinking this morning, because I'm reading Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill, who I sometimes mention on here, and in Outwitting the Devil, it's him having this long, drawn-out conversation with the devil, 
and it's it's very interesting. You know, a lot of it is stuff that you probably probably already know about how to avoid the devil's watchful eye, how to stay out from underneath the devil's thumb, the devil's uh, long, gnarly. You know, his fingernails are all grown way too long, starting to curl. But how to stay out from underneath the devil's thumb. And one of the things that they say, and I say they, even though Napoleon Hill wrote this book, you can say it's fiction in a way, his conversation with the devil, I do feel that Napoleon Hill, despite his sort of business-oriented self-help, I do believe that guy, I mean, he talks about very out-there spiritual experiences that produced his insight into success. And while that was communicated in the form of this think-and-grow-rich sort of how to become a successful businessman approach, you can really apply it to many things, virtually everything, in my opinion. So when he's talking to the devil, the devil says, you know, I get a hold of people when they start to drift. Basically, when people become unfocused, he refers to hypnotic rhythm. And he he says that hypnotic rhythm is something that you can either use to your advantage or it can be something that allows you to to lose control over yourself. And I like that idea because I do feel that most things are two sides of the same coin. Most positive traits, most strengths that you can find are often correlated with a underside that is a weakness. It's like vanity can be used... Like the positive manifestation of vanity is wanting to be healthy, wanting to be productive, you know, wanting to cast a good image and have that image actually represent who you are. But we all know the bad side of vanity. You can be self-centered, narcissistic. You, know, you can be a, a prima donna, a prima donna. You can be that easily. And so, so many, and I mean, I could go through a million other examples. And I mean, it's kind of, you know, Carl Jung, his archetypes are based on that, where each positive archetype has a negative archetype. Like, I believe one of them that he used was the wise old man, which we all know. We all know what that is. Every culture emphasizes that. That old men can be sage like. If they're sages, not just sage-like, they, they can be sages and often are. They've accumulated wisdom. But the counter of that is they can be these tricksters, which is interesting. It's interesting that Jung put those two ideas on the same coin, that those are the, I guess, the forward-facing and back-facing sides of the same archetype, the idea that the wise old man is also this meddling trickster I kind of bounced my sold my shoulders my I can't even say shoulders anymore every time I say it I say soldiers which is what they are your shoulders are your soldiers your body's an army and your shoulders if anything on your body's a soldier it's your shoulders uh, but I kind of bounced my shoulders as I said the um but yeah, it, I think a lot of things are that way, where there's a a positive outgrowth 
of something, which is one side of the coin, and then there's you know this negative, malignant side of it. And positive traits can very much. You, I mean, you're often gonna be balanced between those things anyway. It's very difficult just to to be wholly in line with you know the best. I don't know. It's it's, it's very difficult to to be completely on one side or the other. Um, and I think most people find themselves in some sort of dilemma between those things. But in reading this, you know, where the devil talks about people begin to drift and they get caught in this hypnotic rhythm that makes them susceptible to negative influence. They're spiteful. They're self-destructive. They have little discipline. And a hypnotic rhythm stands out to me right now because it feels like people are caught in a hypnotic rhythm. I mean, I, I just never in my life, as someone who has been fascinated by negative emotions my entire life, and I've been caught in my own hypnotic rhythm and been prone towards those feelings myself. But as someone who's always been interested in the underside of life, in the underbelly of just individual people, as well as our species, our society, I've always been fascinated by that. I've always studied that. Whether it was true crime, serial killers, the mafia, I'm very interested in the underbelly of everything, of individual people, as well as the collective. And I, I just, I've never seen a period of time in my entire life where people were as hateful as they are right now. And where people are projecting that word onto whoever believes something other than what they believe. And as I often mention on here, hatred has become this brand name that only applies to certain people. Meanwhile, many of the people who are calling other people hateful are in fact very deeply hateful. And you can see that in their expression. If you get away from the abstract, intellectualized response that you have to what someone says, which is what makes you, dis it, you know, and part of that is agreeing or disagreeing with it. When you get beyond whether you agree or disagree with the intellectualized, abstract idea that they're expressing, and you just look at what they're saying is on a on a, just a gut level on a feeling level the tone of it that's how you should assess whether something is coming from a place of anger or hate and one of the sickest things that i'm seeing right now i do believe it is very sick i believe it is very twisted is this idea that kindness and politeness i, I saw a girl that i used to be so close to she's incredibly intelligent I have nothing but respect for her. And we've always had some disagreements over just the nature of people and society. And she has a wonderful heart and, and just a, a very sharp person. But I've seen her say things recently like, you know, it's politeness and courtesy that creates Nazis. And I understand the logic behind that. The idea behind that is that you know, it's it's people being passive in the face of injustice. It's people quietly just going along with the flow of things when the flow of things might be very dangerous and destructive. 
But that's also an idea that's being heavily manipulated right now. And the idea that simple politeness, courtesy, a desire for understanding and peace, the idea that that is inherently some form of endorsement for the most destructive impulses is itself an endorsement of destructive impulses. The idea of demonizing these ideas. And I see people say that those ideas are white supremacist ideals. And maybe you're not seeing the same things I'm seeing if this, is, if, if this sounds like crackpot rambling. But I see this coming from people that I know personally. And granted, I'm surrounded by people on the far left, including the people who I once considered moderate leftists have gone much further to the left. And I mean, everybody I know who's on the right has gone further left. Well, not everybody, obviously, but what's considered right wing right now is considerably more central, centrist than it ever was when I was growing up. And I've always paid attention to these things. I was very observant during the Bush era as to what they believed and how they expressed themselves. And what I see from the average conservative today is far more left than what I saw from the average conservative during the Bush era. But this idea that courtesy and just a willingness to, a, de a desire to just show basic uh, respect, decorum, you know, whatever it is, the idea that that is inherently an endorsement or, or some sort of passive support for white supremacy, which itself is a very abstract idea, especially the way that it's started to be discussed. Because there are examples of what one could call white supremacy. It's not that there is nothing concrete there. Of course, there's concrete examples of those sorts of ideals. But the what I'm getting at here is this repeated slogan that civility is always in aid of hate or destruction or bigotry. And the people who are saying that, they're often coming from this place of, oh, it's it's the white Christian dominance that set it in people's brains that you just smile and nod along and you shouldn't fight, you shouldn't argue, you should just accept that people have different ideas, even if those ideas are bad. And it's come up on this show recently where I've been, you know, I read the Buddhist precepts, these Eastern ideas, these non-white ideas. Hey, people, just so you know, just so you know, Buddhism is not white. It ain't white. You know, if you if you need that lesson, boy. You know, while it while maybe your introduction to it was, you know, some new age lady in a robe telling you to follow your bliss, follow your bang energy drink, take bubble baths at night. Now here you know what, what it is. Follow your bliss, Buddhism. Take bubble baths and eat ice cream. No, but these ideas are, are not they're not only not Western, they're not only not Christian, they're also not white. Is, is the entire philosophy of Buddhism, which is very much based on 
approaching life with an inherent kindness and seeing yourself in everybody. Because that's what, I, what really draws me to Buddhism in particular. But it's not a non-Christian idea either. But what has really drawn me more and more toward Buddhism in the last, I'd say, four years or so, as I've just, I, I recognize that what I was looking for in more obscure places was already available in places that were already, you know, you didn't have to dig as much. You don't have to dig under as many holes uh, you don't have to dig as many holes in the ground to find what I was, I was looking for, whatever. Um, uh, but, you know, with Buddhism, like, one of the ideas is that, you know, seeing the wholeness of your species, I mean, of course, the wholeness of everything, but the wholeness of your species means that even the people who agitate you the most, and probably them more than others in some ways, are you too, you are a part of them, they are a part of you. And the more they agitate you, the more resistant you are to that idea that they are you as well, the more true it probably is. You know, the harder it is to accept, the more true it probably is. And it's, of course, as true as everything else. The people that you agree with and love and you feel some sort of harmony with, of course, they are equally part of you. But you are reluctant to believe that the people who are so different from you are as much a part of you as the people that you think are on your team. And that's hard to get around. And, you know, you could say that's a purely Eastern idea. And then you see lines in the Bible like Jesus in disguise. Is it the unloved, the unsightly? I don't know the exact quote. But the idea is that even the most repellent people are Jesus in disguise. And that's a very similar idea. That's very similar to the idea of recognizing that you are everyone, that we are one thing. And it's hard to get to the heart of that because it's shrouded in so many cliches. You hear it from people who you feel don't really mean it. But when you learn that those people are you too, the band, because <laughs> isn't that their thing? <laughs> I feel like you too's whole, I feel like a lot of these ideas come to you through bands like you too, who are like, we're just one world. We're just one world. You know, you too with those accents. We're just one world, people. Live aid. The message of live aid is that you are me. And I am you. But you hear it from these people like you too. And, you know, yeah, there's some people who are big U2 fans. And if U2 says something, it's going to resonate with them. But there's a lot of us. And I don't have a beef with U2. I don't have a beef with you. And I don't have a beef with U2. But, you know, I'm not going to be able to get... Their message doesn't pierce my armor. But now I can recognize that, yeah, they probably see things the way I do, too. I'm you, too. I am you, too, and I am you, comma, too. And, uh, but, uh, but you know, it's, it's when you're, uh, what am I even getting at? It's, I mean, you often hear these things, you often hear these ideas come from the mouths of people that you're not drawn to. And they might even be repellent to you. But when you realize that 
you are not distinct from that person, it becomes easier to accept. And you probably have to go through your own process where those ideas make sense to you in your own terms. And there's no way anybody can lead you into that. That's a purely Gnostic, purely experiential phenomenon where these things that you've heard from a million people your entire life suddenly become relevant. They suddenly become personal. And they expand your definition of the word personal too. Because when you think of what's personal, you think mine, mine, my bang energy drink. But in the same way my friend drank one of my bang energy drinks that she bought, I can say, you know what? It's really awesome that somebody I like, my friend, is drinking a Bang Energy drink. The fact that they can sit there and get the the benefits. Because, I mean, the reality is I don't even feel anything when I drink them. My caffeine intake is so out of control that I don't even get a buzz. But I know, I can, I can tell that I've had it. You know, that's the thing about caffeine for me is I can tell when I have it. But I don't get that kind of, you know, I remember the first time I ever had one of those double shots. You can buy uh, just the canned Starbucks, 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 Starbucks double shots. And I was just floating around my job. I had a job and I was just floating around the office when I drank that. I was just like, this is cool. And the next thing you knew, I was going over to the company coffee machine and drinking coffee. And now I don't even feel any buzz. I don't feel any buzz. But I just know when I've had it and I want it. But I could enjoy the fact that my friend was drinking a Bang Energy drink because it wasn't about the fact that I was going to only have seven Bang Energy drinks in my supply instead of eight. And I could say, you know, it's really awesome that this friend of mine or anybody, I mean, I've seen litter i've seen bang energy drinks on the side of the road crushed like someone drank it and just threw it out their window and i've gone on and on about littering here and how littering is something that an unhappy person who sees the world as garbage does you don't litter if you don't see the world as a garbage dump and while that's infuriating because i hate the sight of litter i understand that person's miserable whether they express it or not that is a miserable action to litter Yet, I see a Bang Energy drink, and I can say, that person had a Bang, and that's cool. At least that person did something that I approve of. I might not like what they did with the can afterward, but I like that that person drank a Bang Energy drink. And this was a pretty profound experience for me when my mom died 10 months ago, where there was Mother's Day, and then Coronavi, Quarantine, where I had this thought on both of those. On Mother's Day, I had a thought where I was like, it's great that there's people out there who can call their moms right now. I didn't think, mm, what the hell is Mother's Day? My mom died and, uh, you know, I don't, get to, I don't get to call my mom today. Why are you rubbing it in my face? Why are you rubbing it? You know, I didn't feel that way at all. I ended up thinking, like, it's really awesome to know right now that there are people out in the world calling their moms, seeing their moms. And I had that thought during quarantine too because I became it became apparent that people were reaching out to their family even if they couldn't see them, even if they couldn't see them through the thick smoke, through the, through the thick fog of coronavi, 
Because Coroni Island, not to be confused with Coney Island, Coroni Island is shrouded in a, a thick mist. And they warn you. That's why you have to wear a mask. Because the mist is poisonous. But uh, Coroni Island is shrouded in a thick fog. And, you know, people were having to call their their parents to check in. And, and I thought about that. And I was like, you know, on one hand, it's like a... It's sad that I don't have my mom and I can't touch base with her during a, a very strange and difficult time. But I thought about it. it was the same as the Mother's Day thought where I thought, but it's wonderful to know that people are able to talk to their parents right now. And, you know, that I don't need that. While it would have been nice, it would be wonderful. You know, my mom's light merged with me. That was one of the most profound, I mean, I, I would say easily the most profound experience of my life was standing there, touching her as she died, and feeling this great illumination inside of me, feeling like I was literally floating. And and how that was far more powerful than the sadness and the loss. And so... You know, while I don't feel that to the same extent that I felt it then, it's still a part of me. So anyway, so it's needless to say, all of that helped me be like, well, it's great that other people are able to do that thing that I can no longer do. And the fact that I can think about the fact that they're doing that and appreciate it, almost live, I wouldn't even say it's like living vicariously through somebody. It's just simply kind of feeling what they're feeling. I wouldn't even say it's empathy. I wouldn't say it's any of that. I mean, I'd say it goes beyond definition. The only way to explain it is that it's some sort of experience. It's a taste of the wholeness when you get that. And that could be seeing a crushed Bang Energy drink. It could be your friend drinking a Bang Energy drink in front of you and thinking, "I that's one less Bang Energy drink for me. But then you turn that into somebody is we are connected (laughs) you turn that into we are connected basically you don't feel a loss because the simple fact that another human being is doing that is somehow you too it's the band and it's you but uh yeah so that's part of it that is part of it And with, you know, to go back to the Napoleon Hill thing, Outwitting the Devil, where he's talking to the devil, and the devil talks about how one of the ways that he gets people when they drift is they don't have definiteness of purpose. And that could be translated to meaning. People talk about having a sense of meaning. And definiteness of purpose. And I was thinking about that this morning as I read it because it crossed my mind that, you know, a lot of what I might be saying could come across as a lack of that or that I'm encouraging a lack of some sort of definitive purpose in your life. And one way that people understand having a definitive purpose or definiteness of purpose is goals. That's one of the most obvious ways. I want to do this thing that is going to somehow make my life better, make my life more secure, make me stronger, give me some sort of material benefit, which there's nothing wrong with. There's nothing wrong. I respect money. I have a a lot of respect for money right now. 
I don't hate money. You know, I don't love it, but I have respect for what money is in our world. And I don't have an alternative. I do not have an alternative to money. Turns out, I, I you know, I'm not a master uh, economist. I don't have some philosophy when it comes to these systems that have been in place far longer than I've been around that are beyond my ability to... They're just beyond my ability. I can barely comprehend money. And I can respect things that I barely comprehend. In fact, the things that I barely comprehend, I try to approach those with a measure of respect because I think that's impressive. If something is beyond your comprehension, your default should be to respect it. You know, especially if, it's, if it can destroy you. You know, especially if it can destroy you. Because I was just thinking about some sort of soul eater. Some sort of large universal force that is swallowing everything in its path. Think about the old Transformers movie. Nostalgia. You ever heard of nostalgia? Remember the Transformers cartoon movie? But in that, there's is it Unicron? It's like a giant planet that swallows other planets and everything in front of it. You're not going to understand that. If Unicron came in, in and you saw it approaching, you might be terrified and you might be like, this thing is going to take everything that I care about and swallow it. But you're going to have a little bit of respect for that, right? Not in a might is right kind of way, but it's like there is a process playing out that is beyond my comprehension. And that's how I feel about money. Because money can, and the lack of money can swallow you whole, and it often does. It's, it's what I'm most stressed out about right now. It's really the only thing that is getting, in, that it's getting to me right now is income, money. It's the only thing that is getting to me right now, and I feel good overall. You know, I feel positive. I feel strong. But the fact that there's this thing that is seeping in and making me stressed is impressive, and I, I can respect that. I don't have to view it as inherently sinister. Well, money can obviously be sinister. I'm not going to view it as some inherently sinister, poisonous force. Because the reality is, if I were to suddenly feel financially secure, I would suddenly be like, oh, money's great. Money, money great. Money's great. You know, so it's like your respect for something should not be based on your individual relationship to it right now. And I think things that are beyond your comprehension, you should default toward respecting it. Because you don't actually lose anything. You don't actually lose anything when your default approach to something is respect. Because that's what you should do when you interact with people who very well might be beyond your comprehension. You go to the grocery store and there's people around and when somebody's just not paying attention, they might even be looking straight ahead, but they're about to run their cart into you and not in a malicious way. You wonder, what the heck is going on? You know, for me, I go to the grocery store and it's like a dance. You know, nowadays, I, for the first time in my life, I push a cart around because I actually stock up on things. But, you know, traditionally... I only carry a little hand basket around 
And when I have that hand basket, I'm I'm just I'm twirling around. I'm slipping in between people. I'm using hypnotic rhythm to my advantage, and I didn't even know. I didn't even know. I just knew that it's like I know what I want. I know how to get there, and I want this. I want to be swimming in it. I want to swim through this oxygen and just twirl around and dance. My movement is deliberate, but it's unconscious. I can be a bumbling mess everywhere else, but there's something about grocery stores that uh, I just, I feel like I I slip into it and I'm very aware, but I'm also just uh, on autopilot where I'm just, I'm I'm like a, a very talented running back when it comes to grocery store shopping, where I'm just, I'm able to juke, I'm able to spin, but it all looks, it all looks planned when it's not. Uh, the only thing I'm proud of in life, really, is this. Uh, but uh, then when, when I encounter somebody there who just seems like they're barreling around, they're going to run into you. They don't even realize they're, they're in your way. They're disrupting your dance. They're beyond my comprehension because I don't understand why you'd do that. I don't understand why you'd go to a grocery store and just be dead weight in other people's way. And have no idea what you're doing. But I know that that's the negative side of hypnotic rhythm. As discussed by the devil via Napoleon Hill. That's the other side of that coin. That's the other side of hypnotic rhythm. Where while I feel that I'm in a certain place. And there are certainly times where I've been at the store and I'm a bumbling mess for sure. I can be a a, a block, a blockhead. You know, I can be that too. This isn't about me praising myself. Even though I think that my grocery store dance maybe deserves a little acknowledgement. And who's going to acknowledge it except for me? Because it's only me. It's a solo... It's just me there by myself doing my maneuvers. And people who aren't in that... People who aren't on that side of the coin of hypnotic rhythm are beyond my comprehension. But I still respect them. And that's what I'm getting at, is something that's beyond you. I mean, I respect mystery probably more than anything else, because it has something on me. Mystery has something on me in that I can't answer it. And the more difficult it is to find that answer, and maybe even the less that I want to find that answer, the more my respect for it grows. So I think it's it's important to respect things. Money's beyond my comprehension, so I respect it. People are often beyond beyond blah, blah, blah. they're beyond my comprehension, so I respect them. And that's what I mean about not losing anything. When you go out into the world, when you go out into traffic, when you're waiting in line, when you're doing anything that involves some level of cooperation with other people, you don't want to be the source of potential disrespect. You want to be somebody that other people can respect. Even if everybody's stressed out, even if everybody's confused, even if you're waiting in line, you know, and nobody wants to be there, whatever it is, there's so many situations like that. You don't want to be the source of disrespect. And by approaching that situation with respect for everybody that's there, and I mean, a great example is when you're stuck in traffic and everybody's stuck, 
everybody's inching along, but you're the person who's agitated, and somehow you're mad at all of these people who are experiencing exactly what you're experiencing, and none of them are any more responsible for it than you are. But yet you're mad at them. You're honking your horn at them. You're not letting other people merge. You're not being respectful, and you don't deserve their respect in that moment either. Because in order to truly be respected, you have to be respectful. And there is a self-serving side of that. You know, I don't... People get too focused on things that, oh, that makes you feel good. Oh, you're only feeding the, the homeless. You're only volunteering in the soup kitchen. Because it makes you feel good about yourself. And it's like, that's... Uh, I don't volunteer. But someone does that partly because it makes them feel good about themselves, but it doesn't change the fact that they are doing a good thing. And it turns out you can do that in many small ways that aren't actually that small, but they're not bold acts of service, but simply going out into the world with an air of respect, with civility, back to that, this idea of kindness and civility. And uh, there's a quote. My mom had a quote on her fridge. It's now my fridge. Uh, but it's, I'm just, I'm in the kitchen. I can't believe I didn't let you know at the beginning of the episode. I'm in the kitchen here. And the quote is, she cut it out of something. Looks like she found it in maybe a magazine or a book or something. And it says, be kind whenever possible. It is always possible. And you see that repeatedly. In Buddhism, it emphasizes loving kindness over and over again. And those are words that I hesitate to even say. I hesitate to say loving kindness. I'm not the kind of person who enjoys the, the way those words have been branded. In the same way hate has been branded to only refer to certain things that don't nearly encompass the, all of the hatred that goes on in our world, the same is true for loving kindness, where that's been branded a certain way, and I don't, on an aesthetic level, just when it comes to my taste, I don't love the way that that kind of phrasing has been branded in our world, loving kindness, partly because a lot of people say that, but it doesn't seem to be something they practice, but you have to get beyond that, you can't let that limit you. And you don't have to say that. You don't have to go around and say, choose love. You don't have to put that on your car. People have bumper stickers that, that say, you know, love. And I bet if you were to follow that person around, you might see them do some things that aren't entirely loving, that aren't entirely respectful while they're on the road. I don't want to make any assumptions, but we've all seen that. Someone with a sticker, a bumper sticker with rainbow colors that says love on the back of their car probably tailgates somebody. They probably cut somebody off at some point because we all do. We're all imperfect. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't have that bumper sticker. It doesn't mean you shouldn't say that. But I think that's one of the turnoffs for people like me is the branding of those ideas. There is a certain brand and saying loving kindness kind of feels like it's been branded. It's been taken over by a certain sort of aesthetic. Like, oh, you can only be a loving person 
if you are into Valentine's Day heart shapes. You can only be a loving person if you decorate your home with hearts. Your wallpaper's got to be hearts. You got to have a wooden cutout heart that says love in the middle of it. You got to have that on your counter. You got to have a tattoo. You got to have a tattoo of that weird fake heart shape that we just, when we think of the word heart, we think of that shape that doesn't actually resemble our hearts very much. Amazing, I know. I know you didn't know that. I know you didn't know that that fake heart shape is in fact not what a real heart looks like. But you got to get a tattoo of that over your real heart. Otherwise, you're not a loving person. You got to brand yourself with love. No, you don't. Of course you don't. But you can still live that way in practice, in life. And again, you're not perfect, so you're not going to be the embodiment of love, although some people manage it. My mom very much was, and I, like I, I've said before, I, I didn't sanctify her when she died. I would have said that while she was living. She managed to, while she didn't, again, she wasn't perfect, I did see her embody that ideal in a way that I haven't seen from other people. And you would think, being as close to her as I would, that I would have seen a lot more of that other side of the coin, which was there, but it was very... It was, it was a very small part of her. She operated on one other... She operated, she operated on the stronger side of the coin because it is a sign of strength when you go out into the world with some sort of respect and civility. It's self-control. And self-control is the source of all of your strength. Your physical strength, too. It's not just some sort of abstract idea of strength. It's not some sort of emotional strength. Your physical strength is a result of self-control as well. It's the result of focus. It's the result of discipline. So, you know, civility is crucial. And somebody who's saying that some sort of civility is an endorsement of hate and destruction, well, you can hear that and just say that is blatantly manipulative. Because you think you are so right that anything that is not in that parameter of rightness that you've defined, or that somebody else has probably defined for you, that that feedback loop has reinforced. So anything that doesn't fit with your idea of what's right, anything that doesn't explicitly support your idea of rightness, is an endorsement of hate and destruction. That sounds pretty hateful and destructive to me. That sounds pretty closed. That sounds pretty disrespectful and narrow. That sounds violent. Potentially violent, I should say. Because, I mean, one of the problems is people using the, viol- using the word violence to refer to things that aren't violent. The reason that word exists is is so that we can describe a certain sort of behavior accurately. And you have so many ways to express yourself in our world today. If you're talking about real, actual violence, say violence. If you're talking about something that could potentially lead to violence, something that you see as an endorsement of violence, something that is, you know, a mindset or philosophy that contributes to violence in some way, Take the time to explain that. 
But to call something that isn't by definition violence, violent, well, you lose the trust of other people who don't see things your way. And I want to trust people. I want to trust everybody, and I try to. Because again, it's like respecting everybody. Like Your default mode going out into the world should be to respect people. Respect their space. Don't provoke them. You don't have to massage their shoulders, their soldiers. You don't have to stick a $20 bill in their mouth and massage their shoulders just to show you, them you respect them. And they might feel that that's disrespectful. You should not mess with them. <laughs> you know? It's that simple. It's like, just don't do anything to disturb somebody else's peace. And that is the, just the primer. You can add some paint on it after that, but that is the primer of what respect is. And it shouldn't even need to be said. But the idea that civility is something that one group of people has used to their advantage. The idea that loving kindness is something that people say as some sort of nefarious plot or lazy, you know, the, the idea that that's, first of all, lazy at all. Because that's what's behind the idea that civility is somehow an endorsement of bad things in that it passively allows them to happen. That implies that civility and respect and kindness are lazy when they're anything but that. That implies that those people who are practicing that are simply lazy. And what people are missing, too, is that those people who might be willing to behave civilly, to behave respectfully, to have empathy for even people who you consider repellent, repugnant, whatever, you, whatever word you want to use. Those people are actually a bridge to those people. And unless you want to kill those people, which you might. Like I said, I've never seen the amount of hatred I'm seeing now. Everywhere. And I try not to see it. We all, like, we all take our little peek. But I'm not deliberately seeking this out. But everybody is fuming. Many, many people. There are some spiritual people I follow online who I have a lot of respect for. They, are, they practice. They, they have a lot going for them, and I've learned from them. And I might not agree with everything. I might not follow the same exact belief system they follow and all that, but there's definitely a parallel but in the last few months, I'm, I'm just seeing this deterioration, this great instability from them. And I'm not going to make any assumptions, but it's just something has slipped and they seem just positively unhinged. And they're in fact, they're so angry. And I mean, I, I do think spirituality attracts self-aware, angry people especially people who have kind of a cold burning anger like myself like earlier in life I wasn't explosive sure I've been in arguments with people but I don't think that I was an explosive angry person at any point but I did have often have this kind of cold burning festering anger that didn't always come out directly and obviously everyone talks about how that can be worse just this kind of you know, it's just like some sort of quiet, like, 
you know, I don't know, something bubbling in your guts. And I had that feeling, you know, so much, you know, more often than I would like, not that I didn't enjoy life, but it just, I, I would have that feeling often. And so I think that people who feel that way are often drawn to spiritual practice in some way. They're often drawn to some sort of mystery. They're often drawn to these things that are beyond comprehension, but can nonetheless help you balance yourself, help you become in harmony with what it is to be alive. And with that, though, you know, you're always going to be predisposed toward that thing that led you here. Because if you feel great normally, you don't need to go looking for anything else. Like, if you don't have some sort of, if you're not twisted up in some way, why would you need to start meditating? Why would you need to open the Bible? Why would you need to start studying Buddhism? Anything. Anything that leads people toward some sort of spiritual outlook. Why would you need that if you feel fine as it is? So I'm not surprised that these people who I thought had kind of transcended some of this seem to be operating on this base level. And I don't judge them for it, but I'm, it's not encouraging. It's not interesting. And uh, I don't want to name names because, I mean, these aren't people I know personally, but they're fairly well-known people, in, at least in certain niches. I mean, there's a guy that I follow, and he's not, I consider him less of a spiritual guy, he's a psychologist, but he's been doing a show since, I believe, the 80s or 90s, it used to be a public access show, and he started to do it on YouTube in recent years, of course, of course, I mean, YouTube is public access, and it's not a podcast, it's actually a show, an interview show, and he covers everything from psychology to the paranormal, and it's out there. You know, and it often verges into new age. And I don't agree with a lot of it, but I, it's just something nice. I like the host. He's a very kind-hearted guy. He's an interesting guy. It has a lot of very knowledgeable people. It has some kooky people. But you don't have to listen to that. Um, but recently, he's had a guy on his show for many years. And it's actually one of the reasons why I, I first found his show. A guy who's very controversial. His controversial political beliefs... And he's an absolute expert in, in, you know, he's one of those people who can break down these philosophers of, you know, spanning generations, spanning hundreds of years, thousands of years. And he can really explain their philosophies simply and in a way that you remember. You know, I don't know, that doesn't sound very eloquent, but just he can, he just really can break it down in a way that few can. And he seems to know a lot about everything. And it's not his own interpretation either. I feel that he accurately represents the many things he has studied. I mean, it, it applies, he talks a lot about religion as well, spirituality. And he's not, a, I don't think he's a, a spiritual person himself, not directly at least. I think he has, he's just an interesting guy, but he's he's drawn some controversy over the last five, ten years because he's Definitely, he definitely has some strange political opinions that aren't represented by anybody, really. I've never heard some, some of his opinions are just out there. But these guys have been friends for many years. And this guy, he's probably been on the show as a guest more often than anybody, a guest in person. 
And these guys seem to really get along. And the host is addressed. I mean, the host is a, a leftist. He's a Jewish leftist guy. I think he's great. I, I love his approach. He knows how to move a conversation along while letting the guests speak. But he's made it very clear that, you know, he's on the left. He's kind of a new agey, you know, parapsychologist. And some people think he's kind of a weirdo, but he's just a, a very kind man. He's a guy who lives that loving kindness. He embodies that. And it, it comes across authentic. And he's explained how his approach to this friend, his friendship with this controversial figure, where they've managed to move beyond their differences in opinion, and he feels some of that controversy is unfounded. But recently he did a, a short episode, it was like 15 minutes long of his show, and it was just him talking, and he's like, I've learned some things about my friend, and he's still my friend, but I've learned some things about him that I have to address. And it was this call-out. Somebody referred to it as a hit piece. <laughs> I like that term, hit piece. Um, but he, he was talking about this guy, and he's like, I've learned that he's a warmonger. And it was not what I expected him to say because he had addressed some of this guy's other controversies. And the guy that he has on the show, he's, he's an, a guy who's half Iranian. And a lot of this guy's beliefs are rooted in pre-Islamic Iranian culture and civilization. You know, so it's it's the pre-Islamic, you know, I think Zoroastrianism, whatever, I think that's how you pronounce it. It's some of the stuff that influenced Nietzsche for sure. And this guy's managed to integrate that into his own philosophy. So he's ethnically part Iranian, and he, he's but he's into this early, you know, he he's appropriated the beliefs of early Iran from thousands of years ago into his worldview. And he, he, you know, and it's not just that he's he is a controversial figure. I don't think it's you know, while I like him, I, I think that it's you know, I, I understand why people have some reservation about him. But the host, you know, he's addressed that. He's addressed some of those issues before and defended this guy. And so all of a sudden, though, he did this out of the blue. He's had this guy on his show recently, and all out of the blue, though, he he's like, I've learned he's a warmonger. And he thinks that we should have nuclear war in order to depopulate the earth and prevent these other rival empires from, uh, you know, from dominating the West. And he took this guy's most outlandish ideas. And this guy is not in a position of power. He's a nerd. He really is. I like the guy, but he's a nerd, the guy he's referring to. And I was just taken aback that he decided to do this. I think a hit piece is fairly accurate because... The need for the need to even say that when he has this guy in his show and they they very well could have had a conversation about this. But this guy was like, I didn't know this about him. He's a warmonger. It just seems so funny to me, the idea of being like, I don't I need to address this guy that I've had on my show for years, who's a friend of mine, because I found out he's a warmonger. Granted, this guy is not in a position of you know, political power in any way whatsoever. He's a very, uh, you know, he's not a particularly well-known guy outside of certain circles, but it was just weird to me, and it, it just kind of played into, I feel like, everything that's going on, the fact that even these guys, who seemed to be the best of friends and had moved beyond their differences of, of opinion, even these guys are now at each other's throats in a way. You know, and, and of course, these guys are pretty, these aren't exactly tough guys. 
But just the fact that they're talking about each other this way, I, I was a little disappointed because I'm such a fan of their conversations that it was just disappointing to me. And I'm feeling that way a lot, to be honest. I'm feeling disappointed in this perpetual animosity that I see. People looking for reasons to disrespect each other. People looking for reasons to accuse each other. To accuse each other, if not of something that they are doing directly, to accuse them of being too civil. Something that actually takes an immense amount of self-control. And the more you behave civilly, I mean, it's like working out. It's like lifting weights where, yeah, the more you do it, the easier it's going to be to to keep doing it. But it takes a level of self-control to even get to the point where that's normal. It takes a certain amount of discipline. It takes a certain amount of habit forming to get to a point where lifting weights all the time is normal. And you are locked into that pattern of behavior. It's just like bang energy drinks. It takes a certain amount of time to where drinking bang energy drinks is normal. And you know something is normal when you don't talk about it all the time. When someone starts, it's, it's like I was talking about, when you, the first time somebody ever gets drunk, they will want to tell all their friends about it over and over again. Or if you're like me when I still drink, I'll tell you about it after every weekend. Oh, you wouldn't believe. I couldn't even count the number of drinks. I couldn't even count. Couldn't, couldn't even count. You know, or you're, you become like me and you're just annoying. Um, but... For the most part, though, it's like you don't need to t- keep talking about it. Or the first time you ever smoke weed, it's like you want to talk about it for the next three months. And, you know, that's why kids, like, they smoke weed for the... F- I mean, I knew kids who smoked weed for the first time and, like, suddenly started wearing, like, marijuana t-shirts. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I smoked weed for the first time. Uh, I better wear a t-shirt with a marijuana leaf on it. I better become culturally in line. I better form my identity around this thing. It's what you see with weightlifting and stuff, healthy stuff. It's like people who've decided to start eating healthy and they feel the need to share photos of their meals all the time, which I'm not hating on them for. I'm just saying that it's like we have a need to express something that is new to us and we're excited about it. It feels like a breakthrough. And maybe in doing that, you reinforce that behavior. I'm not saying don't do that, but I'm just saying that we get excited. We get excited when something is new to us. When I started drinking Bang Energy drinks, I wanted to talk about it. When I started running, I started wanting to tell everybody all about running. Hey, have you ever heard of running? Have you ever heard of running? You, you kind of act like you're this ambassador of this thing that is totally new to you. And the more that it becomes normal, the less you need to talk about it. Unless you're proselytizing, like me. Unless you have a a platform to proselytize. Because I do feel that in having a podcast, I end up talking about these things more. Even if they've become normal to me, I end up talking about them more. To whoever. To whoever wants to hear it. But... You know, it does become a a thing that is just normal to you. But that doesn't mean that you lack self-control. And if civility, if you are just naturally civil and kind, you are very special. If being civil and kind requires no greater discipline than just waking up and living your life, and it's always been that way, you are very, very special, and that's incredible. But many people aren't that way. 
And when the world becomes beyond their comprehension, when the when the railing is gone, when the handrail is gone, you can see where people snap into this accusatory, suspicious, just what we're seeing. Nitpicking. Manipulative. And I'm not, I'm not demonizing them for doing this. While many things are beyond my comprehension, I think I kind of understand what they're going through. Because I can feel that compulsion myself. I can feel the compulsion to be mad. The compulsion to point fingers. But that does take a certain amount of self-control to not do that all the time. And when you do have to do it, when you do feel the need, at least you know that you're not just throwing fingers out all the time. Because, yeah, if you point the finger at everybody, eventually you're going to be right. Eventually you're going to point the finger at somebody who is doing the thing that you are accusing them. But it's not a good approach. It's like you're in a classroom full of people and it's like somebody stole the teacher's wallet. And they point the finger at every single kid in the room. Well, you're going to be right because one of those people probably did it. But is it right to point the finger at every single person in the room? And is it going to get you what you want? And the more that you treat every kid in that room like they are the thief, the more likely they are to be like, you know what, if I'm going to get treated like a thief, I might as well be a thief. When the teacher gets a new wallet, I'm going to steal that, even though I didn't do it before. Because you're accusing me of being this thing, and now I'm mad, maybe I don't have self-control. I'm going to become that thing that you said that I was. So that's something you always have to deal with, too. And you should be very careful if you point the finger at someone, because they might not be the thing that you are accusing them of, but they might become that because you're pointing the finger at them. And that's actually a weird form of harmony. Because there's dissonance in that. When you accuse somebody of being something or doing something that they didn't do or that they aren't, you're both going to, I mean, you're, you're being just a ball of dissonance. You, know, you yourself are creating the dissonance. But that other person is going to be like, oh, man. I'm, I, I have to react to this. You're making me feel something... I don't like something dissonant. And, and what's funny about that is a way to reconcile that dissonance is to actually become the thing you're being accused of. It's to you suddenly become in agreement with that thing because, hey, I'm already being accused of it. So I might as well do it. So that's one reason to be very careful about where you point a finger and what you call somebody. Because they might very well be that thing. And let's talk about, you know, the, the trend towards censorship. The constraints on free speech that we see increasing from people that I wouldn't have expected it from. And just so you know, I've been so caught up that I barely drank any of this Star Blast. I've only, it's, it's really like, it's more than three-fourths full. Gotta, gotta finish it, though. So just everything I've said here is just, I'm still running off of one drink. 
Now I'm on my... It's, it's even lukewarm. It's a lukewarm star blast. Red, white, and blue on the can. Black. It's mostly black, but every all the, the logo and the writing and the rim of the can are in red, white, and blue. Hence, star blast. It's a Patriot can. Um, but uh, the idea of censorship and stuff, and I could go on for another hour about that, and I have before, but... The problem with censorship is that you don't get rid of the idea. You obscure the idea. But what ends up happening is somebody will recreate that idea on their own, and it might be even more potent because it will be original. If you're so worried about neo-Nazis that you make it impossible for neo-Nazis to express themselves, which actually lends itself, it gives you an advantage because you can identify them, you can identify a neo-Nazi much easier if you allow them to express themselves. And I know that the reason why people don't want neo-Nazis to express themselves is because they are worried that those people will recruit more people to their cause. But they're actually far less likely to recruit people if they present themselves exactly as they are, with swastikas. Because most people know what that is. Most people know what a swastika is. And while there are some people who, whether it's some sort of rebellious spirit, whether they actually believe in the same things those people believe, while some people will be attracted by that, some people will be like, oh, look at these people who are going against the grain, and I'm against the grain too, so I'm going to become a neo-Nazi like them. They will attract those people. It's not that they won't attract people, but they're actually going to attract far fewer people under that brand. Because most people have been taught about World War II. At least I was. World War II is certainly not a mystery to most Americans born after World War II. It's a war that our country participated again, again, in against Nazis. And it's been a source of pride for our country. While there have been neo-Nazis in our country since then, on a mainstream level, people are opposed to at least that branding of Nazism. And you can't prevent people from being attracted to that because there are people who will be drawn to that, and that's just a fact. But when you force them to change their identity, when you allow someone to create that idea again, but to have it be original, which will happen, when you ban an idea, you give someone the opportunity to come out with maybe the same idea, but... It's going to come out in some new, more organic kind of way, and that's going to be more attractive to people. And you can't stop that without being everything that you're accusing others of being. You can't stop people from coming up with new ideas that are opposed to your ideas without killing them, without putting them in camps. So you very well could become the thing that you are accusing other people of being in your effort to prevent ideas from forming and to prevent ideas from being expressed. And that becomes even more true when people are allowed to recreate those ideas that you are so scared of and to create them in a way that is natural. Because like I said, you know, even though they can be violent, neo-Nazis are 
it's just an extreme form of role play. The idea of pretending to be part of a globally maligned, defunct German political party, pretending to be part of that is a form of role play. And yes, it can be a very violent role play. It can be dangerous role play, sure. But it's contained and it's easily identified. And so when you tell people they can't express that, you give them an opportunity. And you give them an opportunity to appeal to a far greater number of people. Because they'll be able to present that idea as something else. And it might speak to people more as a result. Because while some people are drawn to a swastika, while they are drawn to that role play, a far greater number of people would never team up with that group. They would never support that group because of that very thing that attracted a smaller group of people. But hey, if you give them an opportunity to become something else, something that might make sense in the current world, in an American context, that might be, you know, that might be more dangerous to you. And some people might say that that's already happening. Again, the finger pointing. Seems like people who are just mortal enemies are saying that about each other. Who do you trust? I try to trust everybody. I try to trust everybody because that way I'm more likely to absorb the good ideas. If I trust somebody, I might learn something from them. It's like respecting somebody. Like my default is going out into the world with a level of respect for people. My default is trusting everybody. Because the things that are contradictory, the things that don't make sense, will cancel each other out. And in canceling each other out, the ideas that do make sense will filter down to you. And you don't have to be the thing that got that idea to you. You don't have to be the person who transmitted that idea to you. You don't have to like that person. But if, an, if a workable idea, if an idea that you can work into your system that is not destructive, something that is constructive, if you can get a good idea from somebody that you disagree with vehemently, the more vehemently you disagree with somebody, the more you hate somebody, because you will hate people, you know, the more that you hate somebody, the more potent a good idea is that comes from them. And you can cut away the things that you don't agree with. And you don't have to give credit. The nice thing, if, if, you hate somebody, if you hate somebody, the nice thing about getting an idea from them is you don't feel guilty about crediting them. Although deep down you should know. Because that's how you learn. That's how you learn that, hey, maybe, maybe I can learn from people who I don't agree with. You should credit them in your own mind. You shouldn't pretend that you came up with the idea. But if an idea can travel across that wide of a chasm, if an idea can you know, skip across uh, you know, a big body of water, even though... If it, if it can skip across you know, a, a lake of hatred, that idea is very potent. Probably more potent than an idea that comes from somebody that you completely agree with. 
oh, I already agree completely with this person. And you wouldn't believe it, man. They told me something that I agree with. Wow. But it's like, here's a person who I don't agree with at all. And I learned something from them. Wow. Maybe we are all connected. Maybe we all are the same thing. If an idea can travel that far, that's pretty incredible. And what's a bigger victory than taking something from somebody you disagree with and using it in such a way that it is agreeable to you? That it's actually a constructive idea and it might not be limited to you. It might not just be something that empowers you, but it's something you can do to help create the world that you want to live in. That's pretty incredible to me. I actually can't think of very many things that are more incredible than the idea of an idea coming from somebody you don't like and you being able to do something meaningful with it that is in harmony with your worldview. You know, it's one of the things that we are able to do. But we don't get that with censorship. We don't get that by limiting free speech. We don't get that by branding things. We get that by being open and strong, disciplined. Because if your concern is that other people could listen to somebody you don't like or that you think is a problem and they might join that person... Aren't you really worried that you're going to join them? If you feel like not even you can hear that person. It sounds like it's an issue of self-control and discipline. It sounds like maybe you're worried secretly, not to get too Psych 101 about it, but it sounds like maybe you're a little bit worried that you're going to be the one who might be susceptible to that person's velvet tongue. Velvet tongue. It sounds like you might be the one who's a little bit worried. Because deep down, you know you're part of everybody else. Deep down, you know that you're no better than anybody. You should, at least, unless you have some sort of sociopathic disorder, unless you actually have narcissistic personality disorder. You probably know that you're not actually any better than anybody. So if you're worried about other people hearing something and absorbing it in a way that is malignant, and that goes against your view of a better world, you might very well be worried that it's you who is susceptible. So why not get stronger? Get so strong that you can hear any idea in the world and be able to dismiss the things that you think are just fundamental. They just fundamentally go against your values because it again goes back to values. Get rid of the things that go against your fundamental values, but the idea of something else sneaking in And you allowing it. And it actually aligning with your values, you know. Get strong enough to where you can do that. Develop an amount of self-control where you can do that. Otherwise, you shouldn't even be on a platform telling anybody to do anything at all. You don't deserve to do that. You don't deserve to tell anybody what they can hear or can't hear if you're not strong enough to hear it yourself. If you're not strong enough to deal with it. So that, that's how I feel about that. 
That's how I feel about censorship and free speech. And I wish that it was obvious. I wish that it was intuitive. I wish that people didn't point fingers and accuse each other all the time. I wish that that wasn't the currency of right now. But, you know, even the people who are doing that, I'm not going to dismiss them entirely. I refuse to. I refuse to completely dismiss them in the same way that they dismiss others. And that, to me, is a coup. That, to me, is my own little coup. That it's like, you can be so disagreeable to me, but I can still get something from you. And do I have a little smirk? Do I have a little devilish smile when I say that? Sure, but I don't think it's devilish at all. I think it's, I think it's actually... There's something holy about that. There is something righteous about being able to do that and saying, guess what? You're really annoying me. And I actually think you're contributing to something destructive. But you know what? I'm still going to get a little piece of knowledge from you. And deep down, I'm going to know it came from you. And there's nothing you can do to stop that. Even though I might not see eye to eye with you. There's nothing you can do to stop me from learning from you. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave This golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free 